Our heart sponsor for today is the 501c3 nonprofit National Treasures Artists in Residence. We are supporting them by offering an audience-requested masterclass on business plan writing. Over 30 days, you will receive daily emails with micro-tasks broken down over the month that will give you a complete plan. This will help you assemble your ideas, communicate your concept to others, and raise capital. Participants will be eligible for prizes that will help you polish your plan to optimize success. Visit AchievePodcast.com forward slash business plans with an S to register. Our mind sponsor for today is Modern Career. The Modern Career podcast, coaching, and workshops enable you to navigate your career in an ever-changing world and help you live your full potential. Mary Humiston, a former Chief Human Resource Officer of Rolls-Royce, shares insider tips, including insights from leaders and executives from all over the world. Leverage their expertise. They can help you build resilience, overcome obstacles, and feel more fulfilled every day. Visit modern-career.com right now to schedule a session with one of their experienced coaches, and if you use code ACHIEVE20, you'll get 20% off. On this episode, we have Chris Jean. Chris was born and raised in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. He developed a fondness for literature, theater, and the power of storytelling while young. He studied at Ithaca College, earning a dual degree in cinema and photography and English literature. From there, he moved to L.A. and began his career in production with a few different companies. He worked his way up the corporate ladder, benefiting from attrition. In one such case, he was able to helm the company he was working for, called Autonomy, and was able to rescue them from insolvency. He then worked at Fox for a few years, eventually following a number of producers who left for ITV. He was at ITV for six years, where he executive produced, directed, and wrote the Emmy-nominated show America Now. Roughly six years ago, he launched his own production company called Bon Accord Picture Company. Chris, thank you so much for being on our show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this for some time. Uh, we go, our histories go way back together to the town of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where we were at uh, high school together. And um, now we both find ourselves in Los Angeles. And so yes. uh, I'd love for you to share that story with uh, our audience, yes. uh, how that all came to pass. But um, I'd like to start even before that. Um, you have a great family origin story, and uh, I'd love for you to share it because it, it always gives me great joy when I hear it. Sure. Well, uh, this all will circle back and tie in with the name of my company here in L.A., which is Bon Accord Picture Company. And Bon Accord is obviously a French phrase that means good, uh, good agreement. It's also the ancient motto of Aberdeen, Scotland. And so uh, the reason that my company ended up with that name is because my dad has been doing genealogy uh, in his retirement, I think as is often the case for some people when they retire, they get very interested in that and have time on their hands to invest. And, uh, you know, my last name is Jean or Jean, which is of course French. And the family lore growing up is that we were French and German. And in fact, my dad was very much into this uh, when he was still actively involved in his career. And he had the Jean family traced back to the time of William the Conqueror. And, wow. You know, the invasion of Normandy, uh, or, or from the Normans rather. And <laughs> That's so, a millennia. Uh, 
Amazing. Yeah, it's a long time. And so we were always very proud of that. And my mother's family on her side is very, very French and German. Um, but then my dad took a genetic test, which, of course, <laughs> lots of people are doing and, and sort of being surprised by what they find. And he came back as a 100% match for a Scottish family Amazing. from the Virginia kind of Tidewater area, James River, uh, you know, just over the border in uh, North Carolina, that part of the, of the country. And he thought, well, this was curious. Let me check it out. And in his investigations, what he discovered is that the Gene family lived across the way or across the farm, as it were. We're talking late 1700s, early 1800s, this time frame, uh, from the Peebles family of Scotland, whose first ancestor in America came here in the late 1500s and settled on the James River and had a plantation that was named Bonacourt. Oh, and this is where the name of my company comes from. And so as it turns out, uh, my dad's belief is that the Jean family and the Peebles family were friendly. They had business dealings together. They witnessed land deeds and marriages and other types of things uh, for each other. They traveled together. So as they moved south from Virginia into North Carolina, they did this together. And the theory is that um, a woman from the Jean clan, if you will, and a man from the Peebles clan had a child okay. uh, that for reasons unknown was raised as a Jean. And that this person is in fact my direct ancestor and my father's direct ancestor. And so this explains all kinds of little things like where does the red in my beard come from? <laughs> right. I don't quite understand that. Oh, okay. Scottish heritage. Now I get right. it. Uh, so, yeah, that was very interesting to discover. And then I went and took a separate genetic test uh, to try to get a different data point. And I did come back as close to 40% British Isles. So wow. that uh, pretty much confirms Yes. Uh, you know, that my dad certainly has Scottish heritage on his father's side of the family uh, and probably French and German on, on his mother's side. And so that's passed down to me. And when I learned of that and was looking to brand my new venture, and this, this was five years ago, uh, that just came to me as something that felt appropriate for two reasons, yeah. because it, it has a personal connection you know, Bonacord is also the uh, the password that they used in, in the time. If you're familiar with the movie Braveheart, uh, during the historical events of, of that film and Robert the Bruce and William Wallace fighting for independence or freedom rather um, to fight back the British, or not the British, the English at that time. Bonacord was the, the secret code word they used when knocking on the castle door. <laughs> to make sure that you weren't a spy nice. so you know it has a personal connection to me but uh hollywood being hollywood uh, you really have to have a good contract in place before you do anything and that applies <laughs> to that applies to production assistants taking their first job on a movie a tv show whatever it is it applies to uh, people like myself who run their own small companies and, and have a client base of work we do on a contract basis. 
or if you're selling a TV show or a movie or putting together an investment group or a fund for one of those projects, uh, you have to have a good agreement. And so this all, all made sense to me. And yeah, so therefore yeah, my absolutely. company became Bonacord. Nice. Well, uh, and in that movie, Braveheart, there is um, a, a scene or a hint that uh, there might have been a tryst between William Wallace and uh, the French queen uh, yes. of England. Um, yes. So that's, uh, that's kind of a nice uh, tie in there as well. <laughs> yes. And you know, what's interesting is the screenwriter, Randall Wallace, right. of that movie is a, is a descendant of William yeah. Wallace's family. Right. And in fact, the story that he tells is that they were on vacation in Scotland and they came across a statue of William Wallace and they hadn't heard of him before. They said, wow, I wonder, wow. wonder if I'm related to this person. <laughs> and, Amazing. Uh, that's how we get the movie Braveheart. <laughs> yes, wow, good thing he took that trip. Um, yeah. I thought Braveheart was one of the most exquisitely made films, so well-crafted. Um, yes just hits all the right notes and yes uh, just everything <laughs> cinematography the script the music it just all came together so brilliantly yeah yeah, yeah. great film well so um your so did your parents then uh, or your dad migrated to bethlehem pennsylvania or was it your grandfather who came up north I'm not 100% clear on that. I do know that at some point, uh, my dad's side of the family settled in northern, northern central New Jersey. Okay. Um, and that my dad, in fact, was born in Phillipsburg. Sure, so just right across the river. Across the river from us in yeah. the Allentown, Bethlehem, Easton area. And my mother's family had been in Phillipsburg for a long time. Okay. And so they went to high school together. My parents are that that rare story of high school sweethearts <laughs> who ended up at colleges in close proximity to each other. My dad went to Cornell. My mom went across the hill to Ithaca College. Uh, they oh, lived together okay. as graduate students. Wow. Uh, my sister and I are that legacy, yep. uh, you know, of their relationship over that time. And, and so, uh, yeah, Phillipsburg, New Jersey is where it all began for us. So you were actually born in Ithaca? No, no, no. Um, let me oh. let me clarify that. I was born in Bethlehem at St. Luke's, but my parents gotcha. did live together as graduate students. Okay, so the relationship college. had started there. Okay, yeah. Yeah, well, in, in high school it started, and that, that relationship endured in college. Sure, that's right, yeah, yeah, of course. together as graduate students. My dad pursued and earned his MBA from Cornell. Sure, uh, nice. I believe in 1972. And um, my mom was doing her work at Ithaca, but they moved back to uh, the Eastern area and then eventually to Bethlehem Township. And that's how we ended up in high school together. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. <laughs> well, uh, glad they did that move. <laughs> yeah, me too. So um, thinking back to those um, high school days or even I think the, the seeds that kind of gets planted earlier. Um, yeah your love for story mm. share with us what, what would you attribute the the beginnings because i know that you were oh, you've always been a big fan of literature 
Yes. Uh, and that you do, you had a dual degree when you went to Ithaca yourself uh, in Correct. both um, uh, c cinema studies as well as uh, uh, literature. So um, storytelling was uh, moved you from a young age. So can you recall what it was? Yeah. Maybe there's a certain film you saw and it gripped you. Yeah, so uh, I would say two things on this front. The first would be that, you know, my mother was an educator for the vast majority of her career. She's a speech and language pathologist and audiologist and spent many, many years working with learning disabled children, eventually specializing in children on the autism spectrum. And so reading and literacy from you know, the time when I was still in utero and she would read to me uh, when I was was developing, very big in our family. So there were always yeah, books yeah. around. We were always doing things that were reading comprehensive, reading comprehension related. And these were subjects that I then probably no surprise excelled at in school. And so at, from a very young age, you know, I want to say kindergarten, first grade, uh, you know, those innate talents were showing. So I can remember one specific example of having kind of like a coloring book assignment, I believe in kindergarten. And uh, most kids kind of just scribbled, you know, multicolored draws <laughs> on a piece of paper. And I actually wrote a book, like a, a short story uh, in crayon, That's of course. So great. But, yeah. yeah, and it had a cover, had cover artwork, which also sort of foreshadowed the work I do as a creative director now. And uh, the story was about a little boy who goes down to a, a lake near a home where he lives with his parents, uh, spends some time playing down there and comes home with a rock and later discovers that that rock is actually a turtle. Uh, and that this was, of course, a mistake the little boy made because the turtle was hiding and had its head and, and limbs uh, retracted into the shell. And so this presents a moral dilemma for the child. Do I keep this turtle as a pet or do I take it and return it to the lake because maybe it has a family of its own. So from a very young age, I was concerned with moral dilemmas and how we can explore that uh in literature now i won't spoil the ending for you because this book may or may not still be published one day <laughs> <laughs> fantastic um yeah so the second thing i would say much later i don't know if you had joe shosh for english uh, i didn't actually yeah I and uh yeah miller um and uh caparazzo in ninth grade of course copy that. I had Joe Shosh in the ninth grade and in the 10th grade, and he had such a profound effect on my life. And I made sure many years later to reach out to him after my career had been established here in Los Angeles. And I, and during a period where I was reflecting on, on some of the things I was grateful for early in my life. And I felt very strongly I needed to reach out to him. And so I tracked him down. He's at Moravian College now. Or at least oh, nice. was at the time right. and sent him a note and he replied right away and it was you know a nice connection to have but the story i want to tell is about uh, the 10th grade english class and starting the unit on shakespeare or you mm -hmm. know that period of time that we spent doing shakespeare 
And it was kind of like this dread day where, you know, you're, I don't know how you, how old are we in the 10th grade, 15, 16 years old, something yeah. like that. And you're presented with, you know, this middle English or old English rather. And all of the syntax is anachronistic, very difficult at first glance to really truly understand what's going on, let alone decipher the, the poetry and the double entendre and the layered meaning of things that we all love about poetry and literature, just because the syntax is so foreign. And uh, of course, you know, in <laughs> kind of in uh, was consistent with my behavior at the time, I, I hadn't done the homework. And I just thought, well, I'll wing it because I'm good at this. Uh, but I didn't really know what I was in for. So if you can imagine, I'll paint this picture, the desks are arranged in a gigantic sea facing the blackboard. And we're gonna read through some Shakespeare. I don't know what it was. Uh, I'd love to be able to tell you that it was Hamlet or something, I, I don't know. It was certainly <laughs> one of the plays, of course. And so we're reading through it and you know, there's maybe 30 kids in this class and I'm somewhere around 60% in as far as the rows go. So I have time to watch and observe just the, <laughs> the struggle of all of my peers trying to get through Shakespeare, including the ones, you know, the faithful ones, you know, who did the homework and, and done the work and deserved to have a moment where they shine, still struggling, struggling with this. And so I'm watching this unfold slowly, thinking to myself, wow, I should have, first of all, I should have prepared for this. And second, I'm gonna murder this just like everybody else, you know? And so, but a weird thing happened. It, it got to me. It got to be my turn. And I was able to do it. I can remember that it felt magical that moment to me, just being able to read Shakespeare and intuitively understand it, not being tripped up at all uh, by the syntax, although I was intimidated by it. Once I got around to doing it, I just yeah. had a natural knack for it. And I remember that moment thinking to myself, hey, I did that really well. And I think when you're young, those are the moments that you're looking for that maybe you don't know you need or those moments that demonstrate to you that you have an innate quality for something and it helps you build confidence and self-esteem and understand maybe how you slot into the world. Uh, and so after class that day, Mr. Shosh approached me and said, you have a unique talent, I believe. And what you were able to do in class today is unusual. And I want you to come out, if you're willing, and audition for the fall play, we're doing Much Ado About Nothing. Nice. And you know, I, of course, had never thought about getting involved in drama, although I did go to the school plays and musicals as a spectator and loved them and can clearly remember being intoxicated, carried away by the production of something funny happened on the way to the forum right. uh, that the upperclassmen had done when we were freshmen or incoming freshmen. Right. And so there was that spark. It just wasn't something that I'd connected in my mind from the spark to something I could pursue. Uh, so I went out, I tried out for the play, I got cast in one of the leads as Claudio it was a joint production between Freedom High School and Moravian College. So the director uh, was a drama instructor from Moravian. Uh, Mr. Shosh did not 
direct that play. Mm. And, you know, we had a split cast. So if you remember, Steph Kotz and I played sure. off, opposite each other. Uh, and then the other two romantic leads, Beatrice and Benedict, came from uh, Moravian College. And so this is another full story circle because many years later, I directed and staged a production of Much Ado About Nothing here in Hollywood uh, <laughs> underneath so a Thai restaurant <laughs> on Sunset Boulevard <laughs> in, the, in the middle of July. So uh, that was a, a really great experience. I had fun doing that and it, it certainly felt like uh, tying up a loose end for me. That's fantastic. Very nice. Yeah. Well, kudos to Mr. Shash for singling you out because that certainly lit a flame. Yeah. Uh, I continue yes. to, to grow. And so when you were yeah. thinking about college, um, was it more that, um, okay, um, this would be a legacy school. My mom went there. I think it was obviously mm -hmm. meaningful to my family because my dad also studied in Cornell. Uh, or was yeah. it, um, you know, this is the path. I want to go into production. I want to go and, and so where can yeah. I best find that? Or was it like a Venn diagram overlay? So I'll say two things about that as well. The first is that I was one of those kids that didn't want to leave high school. I was having a ball. <laughs> I was heavily involved. In I think we were on opposite sides theater. of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I played multiple sports. I was a leader in the band. I was student director of the band for two years. I was having a great time. I did not want to leave high school. I didn't. I thought <laughs> maybe this could just last forever. I also, you know, not uh, very importantly, I had uh, a very steady girlfriend who was a junior when I was a senior. And so that was also weighing heavily in my mind, uh, as I think happens for a lot of people when they're getting ready to to leave high school if they're in a relationship like that uh, it's difficult it can be difficult emotionally not to mention that for all of us at that time you know we're sort of like a soup of chemicals and hormones and just trying to sort it all out and you know, those things all have to get factored into our critical thinking so yeah. i didn't want to leave high school my parents were uh, not the type to dictate to my sister and i uh, my younger sister, Courtney, what we should do or think or feel. And to their credit, they made sure to expose us to a number of different things, but then remain kind of laissez-faire about it in the sense of you must decide for yourself where you might like to go to college and what you might like to do. And so for me, that was a time of extraordinary difficulty because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know too much about the idea of college in a larger sense, like, okay, I get it. You're supposed to continue with your education, but for what purpose? Why not mm -hmm. just go get a job somewhere? I had friends who worked and I, of course, worked summers. I was a lifeguard for many years and uh, it took a lot of help and uh, support from my parents to kind of identify schools I wanted to go to um, and to think critically about the type of career I would want to pursue. And so I ended up being, for the most part, undeclared. I went to Ithaca College. Uh, I applied to a number of colleges. I got into most of them. I was very fortunate in that sense. Uh, Ithaca College had this, uh, at the time, 
really well-regarded communications program mm. uh, was endowed to the tune of $20 million. There were a number of programs you could pursue there from corporate communications to television and radio, cinema and photography, which was where I ended up. Uh, and so I decided to go there based on this vague notion that I loved literature, I was good at literature and history and reading and theater, I enjoyed it. Uh, my time as an actor in high school taught me that as much as I loved that, I really wanted to be on the other side and be a director and a producer and a writer. And so, you know, I, I selected Ithaca College for that reason. Uh, I was heavily involved in television and radio in my first semester, but it didn't take, uh, I did not want to work in local news. I didn't want to work for, you know, CNN or ESPN or, you know, at the time, uh, yeah. didn't want to do those things. What I really wanted to do was create art, create visual mm -hmm. art that was also an act of communication. And by that time, I'd become a cinephile and I had really taken to European new wave movies. So you know, we're talking about like Francois Truffaut uh, or Jean-Luc Godard uh, from the French new wave in the 50s and 60s and Antonioni in Italy and you know the, the film Blow Up, that mod masterpiece. Those are the types of things that I was seeing for the first time. I mean, I can still remember seeing uh, Godard's Weekend for the first time, which is a largely our allegorical film. It's not really right. a narrative. And thinking to myself, wow, you can make movies like this and everything doesn't have to be Top Gun, which is of course an amazing movie. Don't get me wrong, I love Top Gun. I've seen it 723 times. Uh, but there was this other thing you could do that I really gravitated toward. And so that's when I made up in my mind that cinema and photography was the route I wanted to go. And I, and I did fall in love with it and there was no looking back once I, found that stream. Uh, however, uh, I, I will say this, that a lot of film schools, and Ithaca at the time was no exception, is that they didn't do a great job of teaching above the line, what we call above the line in the industry. So, you know, that would be your thought leadership, your writers, your directors, your producers, your executive producers, your finance team. Um, you could get through four years of a film school at that time, and Ithaca was a top five film school, without learning how to make a presentation to pitch a project, without learning how does a film get financed? What does the studio look for? What's the difference between doing something at a studio and doing something independently? These are all important subjects. Uh, what does a director actually do? And what are the right and wrong ways to approach that craft? These were not things that you learned at Ithaca College or many other film schools. And you know, directing in particular, you almost never got to work with real actors on your films. You were always casting people you knew or people from the film program as opposed to actors who had been pursuing uh, an acting vertical and had been doing that work and developing that skill. Uh, there wasn't really a lot of opportunity to do that. Now, I think, I think some of the kids in the program who were savvy headhunted their actors out of the theater program, but it wasn't, wasn't something that was encouraged. It wasn't something that was suggested. It was something you had to figure out on your own. And I didn't, 
figure it out on my own. Uh, however, they did teach the blue collar skills really well. So here's how you set up lights. Here's how you run cables. Here's how you record sound. Here's how a camera works. And so Ithaca College was really good at producing gaffers and best boys and cinematographers yeah. and electricians, uh, that kind of thing. So, and that's not to say that there haven't been some notable exceptions. Liz Teglar, who was my year at Ithaca, is one of the most powerful showrunners in television right now. She's doing uh, little file fires everywhere on, I believe, HBO. Uh, yes. I may be wrong about that, where it is. And, you know, Larry Tang, who was also my year, is uh, a well-known television director. So, you know, it does happen. Uh, but Ithaca certainly wasn't teaching those things. And so I felt that something was missing. And that's what led me to wanting to add the English major as a double major. Uh, I felt as though I needed to do something that was going to prepare me for critical thinking and, and thought leadership. I wasn't getting that out of the film program. Gotcha. And so I went and sought that out of an English literature program. And you know, the funny thing is, when I do mentoring with people now uh, as a professional, I often tell this story that I wouldn't trade my experiences in film school for anything, but the skills that I use every day as a producer, as a writer, as a director, as a business owner, as an executive producer, as someone who packages projects, as someone who pitches projects and seeks financing and tries to package financing, 95% of those skills that I use were developed in the English literature program at Ithaca mm. College. Yes. On some level, it's all just communications and right. the ability to get what you want to do across to another person in a compelling and succinct way that makes it their idea. And that's not something that you learn by hanging lights. That's right. something that you learn by studying the written word and yeah. talking about it and doing critical theory. So, no, that's sort of the long yeah. answer to your question. No, that's great. I was uh, very uh, wise, prescient of you to, uh, to, to do that. Tell us about uh, your first job after college. My first job after college, I was a roadie for a wedding singer in Los Angeles. <laughs> okay. So you made it out to LA right after you graduated. Yeah, uh, my junior year of college, I did a professional internship here in Los Angeles in exchange for credit and uh, worked for a film production company here. Nice. And, you know, just did basic PA, office PA, photocopy these screenplays, sharpen sure. the pencils, answer the phones, you know, that, that kind of thing. And then I went back and, and finished my senior year. So I'd already gotten the lay of the land from, for Los Angeles for having lived here for a semester. So that just felt like the right thing to do. And so some friends from college and I uh, got a reasonable apartment here in Burbank and started that uphill climb of looking for your first job. It was a unique situation for all of us because we'd done our internships as juniors. And so it wasn't like, hey, we were in the middle of an internship and now we graduated, will you hire us? Yeah. You know, it had been a year, it had been a year for each of us since uh, we'd been on our internships. And so, you know, we'd found that in some cases, those companies didn't exist anymore. There's right. sort of a lot of 
you know, in Hollywood, there's a lot of, you know, what I call quantum production companies that sort of pop in and out of existence. They, they kind of live for a year or two or three or something, and then it doesn't work out or it merges or, or changes. Right. And, and so in my case, the company where I work no longer existed and I didn't have a way to contact those producers, which is mm. something I regret to this day. Uh, because I do think that uh, I would have enjoyed working for them in the careers that sure. they've built. Yeah, of course. So uh, I was sitting around the pool, the hot tub, a young man one evening in Hollywood, trying to meet people because that's what you do, right? You, exactly. It's a social yeah. industry. You you go to parties, you, you go to bars, you hang out by the pool and you try to uh, get fall into conversation with people who can maybe kick open a door for you. And that's still the case to this day. It's a strange mm. little industry that way. And so I fell into talking with a guy who owned his own event company. We're having this conversation in a hot tub. And, you know, he was uh, like a wedding singer. He did you know, weddings and birthdays and bar and bat mitzvahs and you know, that, that kind of thing. And his roadie had recently uh, quit. And so he offered me the job. $50 an event to carry his gear around, help him set it up. And DJ, uh, during those times where he was taking a bathroom break or something else. And so you can imagine, you know, this people ask, what did you do with your musical theater background in your career? <laughs> <laughs> well, in this particular case, for the three months that I worked for this guy, I found myself often singing and dancing on stage while he was in the bathroom. <laughs> uh, well, so many stories um, start with that very kind of uh, uh, beginning is not where you expected to be when you were going through uh, the effort of no. uh, getting a degree. But um, no. so guide us from there to uh, autonomy, because I think that was like your first experience first in business where you felt like, yeah, you were really in it. Yeah. So uh, again, speaking to the value of networking in Los Angeles and knowing people, I'd stayed in touch with a number of my peers, uh, who had graduated from Ithaca, a lot of them were television radio people, friendships I'd made in that first semester. Uh, I had a few close friendships from this film school, but not many. I had, my friendships were, were more meaningful on the English literature side. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there was a company called Evolution, still exists to this day. It was a, a pioneer of what we now call reality TV or you know, nonfiction. Right television programming. They originated a series on uh, Disney Channel in the 90s, back in the 1900s called Bug Juice, which was kind of like the real world for 13 year olds at summer camp is sort of the long line for that. And they were a hybrid uh, production agency. So they created and produced their own shows and sold their own shows. But they also did commercials and industrials and all these things that kind of fall into the short form or the creative directing space. You know, they would always do the photo shoot for the cover of Vanity Fair, that, that type of stuff, sure. the Hollywood edition of Vanity Fair. And so the head of production at Evolution, as it turned out, was an Ithaca College graduate. Hmm. And he was keen on bringing Ithaca College alums, you know, into the pipeline at the company 
starting them off as runners and production assistants and that type of thing. And so that's what happened for me. A friend that I'd gone to Ithaca College with had landed there as a coordinator, which is sort of one level up from a production assistant in the lingo of the industry. Coordinator is someone who's learning how to be a producer. Hmm. And uh, that person called me up and said, look, one of our runners had to quit because their car broke down and they're physically unable to do the job of driving asset around the city. Do you have a car and are you available? And the answer was yes to both. And I took a job as a runner for $10 an hour at Evolution. Did a good job, got asked to, do, to come back on another project as a footage logger, which was a, a post-production assignment. Did a good job and was noticed by the owner of the company who asked me if I would like to be his assistant. And I said, yes, of course. And so that was really an evolution. That was my first big break. There are people who will spend years being production assistants or post-production yeah. assistants, or they kind of get caught in that assistant coordinator level and they're not able to escape it. Uh, I was very fortunate that this person noticed me and offered me that opportunity. And so from him over the next year, I learned and I needed the education. I learned how things happen yeah. in Hollywood. Not only how to conduct yourself professionally and, and write professional emails and professional phone etiquette, that type of thing. Uh, but I learned basic management skills of how to make something another person's idea. You can't just walk around telling people to do things because you have a better title than they do. Uh, management is, is very key. I learned how to develop projects. Hmm. I learned how to pitch those projects and put together visual decks. Uh, I learned from the ground up how gigantic multi-million dollar productions are produced, the nuts and bolts of development, production, and post-production, and then was eventually given the opportunity to go into the field and work on some shows, both in production and post-production for this company. I'm so grateful for that opportunity. And I'm still friends with Doug Ross to this day, who is uh, the man who gave me that opportunity. Yeah. Well, and towards the end of your time there, I mean, you were there about six years, you were director. Well, so this was evolution. So I was there two years. And oh. what happened was uh, I had moved back into, you know, I graduated back into kind of what we call a permalance role for them, which is you're a freelancer, you're not on staff, you're hired through uh, a staffing agency and you get brought back every time there's a new job because they like you and you're part of the family every time they sell a new show. And so there'd been a, a, a slow period at Evolution uh, during which time the head of production who I mentioned earlier had moved on to another company called Autonomy which That's had been more good. properly an agency commercials, music videos, network launches, show packaging, print, that type of stuff, but wanted to move into developing, selling and producing their own content, their own shows. So this was like the late 1900s at this point. And he called me up one day and said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm in between things right now. And he said, look, uh, I'm over here at a company called Autonomy. There's a lot of opportunity there trying to build an original content division. I know that's what interests you. Are you 
are you uh, available to come check things out? And I said, sure, what are you thinking? He said, well, look, I know that you're at a coordinator level now and you're trying to you know, move up into the producer director space. I have an opportunity right now as a runner at $10 an hour and you'd be driving VHS tapes of the company Real around town all day. Uh, but he prophetically said, you know, there's a lot of turnaround, this company, it's a very busy place. There's a lot of buzz. Someone like you will probably be running this place in three years. And so I thought about it and, you know, I was still a very young man, early twenties. And I said, okay, you know, it's certainly a, uh, leaving a lot of money on the table at that time. Uh, but I went and I took the job and I drove VHS tapes around town for $10 an hour, did a good job, impressed people, was asked to stay on as the company's staff coordinator. Nice. Uh, I, did, I did that. And during that time, I discovered some of what the head of production had been talking about, that there were just a lot of people at the company that inhabited these senior roles, it was a hybrid role. Uh, what we would call a combination executive role, a producer, director, writer, creative director. It had to be all four of those things. And you'd be managing five to 10 clients at any given time. You might be responsible for a commercial campaign with Kraft Foods, music video for Master P, a network launch for Discovery, a show package for John Wells for West Wing, and developing a brand new series maybe for Lifetime or We, for example. That's a really challenging environment to survive in. That happened at the time, that model happened almost nowhere. And a lot of people who were good at one or two of those things found themselves in, in these senior roles. And unfortunately they either burned out or you know, they, they had one skill in abundance, but a paucity of other skills. And so there's a lot of turnaround. And in one particular case, I'd been a coordinator for maybe four months. In one particular case, uh, one of these people just abandoned their job. Wow. And I just, you know, this is, I've always been a leader and I've always gravitated toward leadership and getting things done. And so I just stepped in that's when the work good. wasn't reassigned and just started doing it. Nice. And uh, that became my first client, Fox Movie Channel. In the year 2000, became my first client in the leadership role at Autonomy. And That's great. Over time, you'd eventually work with them directly, right? Oh, yes. So when my review came up, so during this time, the head of production, you know, my friend who'd brought me in had left and someone new had come in who I didn't know and uh, brought in a lot of his own people. And so I was someone he inherited from a previous administration, as it were. And so when my review came up, I said to him, look, I'm not, I'm not going to ask you for more money. Uh, but what I want is the title because I'm doing this work. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, you're too young. We don't want you to skin your knees. You can keep doing the work and we're not going to give you the money. And you can be thankful that you have a job. <laughs> wow. And so that was, uh, you know, that was a lesson for me is, 
never open a negotiation by saying you don't want more money. <laughs> <laughs> it's not something you want to trade on. Uh, but right. when you're 23 right. years old, sometimes you don't know that. And so a funny thing happened on the way to becoming uh, a senior creative at Autonomy that had a production left wasn't there very long and there was a leadership vacuum. The role was not filled for a while. And so I, of course, continued to do the work. There continued to be turnaround of senior creatives to the point where, you know, I had been doing the work of a senior creative without the recognition, but had also now over like a two year period been consistently the only person at the company that was doing it. So during this leadership vacuum, I went and saw the receptionist who had become a friend of mine, and I'm still very good friends with her to this day. She controlled the staffing list with the phone extensions for the company. And I said to her, hey, will you just change my title? (laughs) (laughs) Well played. On the phone list. Nice. And so I got the senior creative title. And I'm so grateful to her for doing that. No one questioned it. It was that type of environment where that was not something that was going to be noticed, especially in the leadership vacuum. And when the new head of production eventually did come in, you know, that was just the reality that she encountered. And I was viewed as a leader uh, with this title, uh, a very affordable one for the company. And slowly over the next year became the supervising producer for the company. So the senior, senior creative for the company. And, Amazing. Well done. Uh, yeah, I had an, it looks, this is what it turned out is that I was able to swim in a sink or swim situation. And I'm, I will always be grateful for that opportunity to prove myself as a writer, as a director, as a producer, as a creative director, as a leader. Um, my company, Bon Accord, is modeled off of that learning experience nice. at Autonomy nice. during these years. And so uh, another curious thing happened along the way, which was, uh, this was like two, this was around 2003. I'd been with the company since late 2009. I was the senior, senior creative producer at the company. Um, I had changed our management systems. I had changed the way we used the Boston Consulting Matrix to look at what kind of work was most profitable for us versus where we were losing work. It was in many ways an MBA through the School of Hard Knocks, if you Mm, will. And I'll never forget the day in late 2003 when the owner called me into a meeting. uh, The the senior vice president of operations for the company had just stopped coming to work. And so we were all very curious about that. And the owner introduced me to a new hire, chief financial officer, and said, Chris, we may be going out of business. (laughs) Um, Previous leadership were not good stewards of the company. Uh, However, the work that you've been doing stands out. And so I want to promote you to, you know, to be my number one for the entire company. And you're going to work closely with this new hire, CFO, 
with whom I'm also still close friends to this day and try to turn around, try to turn the company around. Nice. And if you guys can make that happen, you, know, you can have X, Y, and Z. Promises about money, promises about you know, opening a, a feature film and script and television, uh, development arm of the organization, which is you know, what everybody knew I wanted to do. And so over those two and a half years, really until the end of 2005, we worked 110 hours a week and we turned that place around. Uh, we rescued autonomy from insolvency. Amazing. Well together done. as a team. Yeah. And so great learning experience I took that for experience. sure. It, it was an amazing experience. Uh, the owner went from having to face, you know, professional bankruptcy to having millions of dollars, you know, in the bank in a very short period of time. Yeah, yeah, no, well done. I mean, yeah. uh, and that experience, I'm sure, laid, uh, you know, gave you the confidence to to launch Bon Accord, which you did about six years ago, which I, I want to make sure we talk about but sure. also want to hear about itv so let's give a few minutes there and then let's talk about your launching your own business after we rescued autonomy the owner declared his intent to retire you know he'd been right up to the edge of losing everything and wanted to get out while he was ahead and so he presented the cfo and i with an opportunity to purchase the company from him and own it and continue doing what we were doing. And ultimately we said, no, we said no for two reasons because we didn't have $4 million sitting around. And if we did, we would have gone and made a movie. Right. Uh, and secondly, you know, the owner, you know, was and is the most gifted salesperson I've ever met in my life. And, you know, that is one of the reasons autonomy was so successful. He could sell water to a fish. So how are we going to replace him? You know, the CFO and I were not natural salesmen in that way. Um, you know, CFO managed the ship and I managed the creation of things. So we said no. And, you know, the writing was on the wall at that point. And I got headhunted by Fox, an old client nice. of Fox to come help them launch a brand new network at the time it was called my network tv still is called that to launch that network and six original scripted series primetime series simultaneously uh, in 2006 and 2007 so i went and did that and became uh, at the time this term didn't exist but i became a showrunner gotcha. uh, on one of those efforts. So I did everything from, you know, I applied my autonomy experience there, uh, helped them develop their content, develop the launch of the network, sell that content at the upfronts that year, staff and produce that content, and then run one of the shows exclusively on my own, uh, not on my own, but uh, as far as leadership goes, for two years. And we produced over 600 hours of scripted programming in under wow. two years. Amazing. And we're then shut down by the writer's strike. So right. a lot of people don't know this, but when the, when the recession happened, it was a double dip recession in Hollywood. We had the 2007 industry-wide writer's strike that shut everything down. Okay. And then 
we had 2008 right after that. So it was a really tough time in Hollywood for a lot of people. And I was very fortunate that the executive producers at Fox landed at ITV Studios here in LA and called me up and said, we're building a development team here. We know that you have a nonfiction reality TV background from evolution and from autonomy. You know, autonomy, we eventually developed and sold over a half a dozen shows around the air. Um, And so I was invited to come join an exclusive development group there and I did. And over a two year period, developing, pitching shows, both on contract and then internally on staff. One of those shows eventually sold. It was a news magazine format with Lisa Gibbons. Nice, excellent. Called American Now. And uh, I went and produced that show and directed and wrote on that show, wrote every episode of that show, over 300 episodes, Emmy nominated. So my run at ITV. That's really great. Yeah, you know, my run at Fox was inscripted. My run at ITV, which was much longer, close to, it was over six years, uh, was exclusively nonfiction. Yeah, yeah. And so, take us to that, that point. Yeah, that where you brings decided, us to Bon Accord. Yeah, because uh, tell us. So, you, I mean, taking that plunge is not an easy one to to take. And uh, so, what was going on at the time? So, in two thousand and fifteen. I had been um, a principal at a startup with another producer aimed specifically at trying to produce films. And uh, that didn't work out. Uh, It was not a a good, it wasn't a good fit personality-wise between me and the person who had started up uh, that brand. And so I looked at that time. Now we did we did manage to, you know, produce some things, some small things, music video that I directed, a short film that I directed that we sold at the Cannes Film Festival that I'm very proud of with Ed Marinaro from Hill Street, Hill Street Blues. Um, you know, won some awards. I'm proud of that work during that time. But uh, the lesson I took from that was, look at all these things that I've done, that I'm capable of doing. I need to be able to make executive decisions on my own. Mm. And if I'm going to be taking a risk, I need to know that the culture of that organization reflects my own values. Well, that makes sense, Chris. Yeah. And so that's where Bon Accord comes from. I started it with no capital, which is of course the foolish thing to do, but I had a client roster. And, you know, to this day, I have a small but dedicated uh, Rolodex of clients who bring a diversity of work to me. On any given day, I could be developing and pitching a scripted TV show, a nonfiction television show. I could be asked to direct a commercial to develop and direct a commercial. Uh, to build a team to go cover a product launch for Microsoft or BlackBerry. Um, well, the nice thing really is, is that 
you've had all these experiences. Right? So yes. you you really are uh, able to you know, be a jack of all trades in many ways. It's like yes. there's really no area that you haven't touched. It's and, it's uh, true. There's a downside to that, which is uh, Hollywood tends to want to compartmentalize people and put them into yes. silos. Yeah, and no, say absolutely. you know you're a scripted person, and not even that you're a scripted drama person or you're a scripted, you're a sitcom person. And there is a lot of difficulty moving from silo to silo. And that is a challenge in my business model. So if you can imagine what it's like to try to pitch an investment group about a feature film venture and have them start asking questions about why Bonacord's work doing a product launch or a commercial uh, or a communications campaign for, you know, a school district, <laughs> you know, how and why those things are relevant. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, those are legitimate questions, but, you know, the answer to that is, is that there is no one way of doing this. Sure. And, right. you know, when you invest in a company or a project, you're investing in the, the people, the principles and the culture and your belief and your faith in in those persons. And if really what you're after is to invest in a sure thing, then you should be buying into one of the Marvel films at Disney. (laughs) Right, exactly. You know, it's like, if you're you're somebody who's thinking about investing in the film business and and you don't want to have a lot of risk, then that's what you do. It's gonna cost you more. You know, you're gonna need tens of millions of dollars to invest in the next blockbuster or the next Darren Aronofsky film, you know, an established director. But with the more startup, smaller boutique companies like mine, uh, it doesn't mean that the companies can't do the work. It just means you have to have a different tolerance for risk and a different sense of adventure uh, and and belief for doing it. And so the work at Bon Accord is about developing and pitching and seeking to back those projects or seek a studio deal, while at the same time servicing a lot of these creative clients in commercial and music video and network launches and that type of thing, communications and brand strategy campaigns, even social media. Uh, And that produces a revenue stream that allows me to build teams to develop things or take the time to do the work myself. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Well, I give you a lot of credit, Chris, it, um, to to take this leap based on uh, basically wanting to align values, or be yes. you know sort of leading that or that be that focal point. It's uh, uh, it's really extraordinary. Um, I think few people will do that, and so I, I admire it a great deal. Thank um, you. This has been an amazing conversation. I just, as the richness with which you share your stories um, is really extraordinary. I, I see that, it, I mean, it just, it, it's so ingrained in you. It's it like, comes out of everything you do. And I love that. So you're definitely, you found your calling, my friend. There's no question. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. And I, I uh, grateful to be on your show. Thank you again for, for taking the time, Chris. Really do appreciate this.